I'm going to start by asking you a question. Um, what if this holy, perfect, beautiful God, this God that we've been singing to and singing about this morning, what if you insulted him? What if you insulted him, you turned your back on him, and you walked away and you said, I'm just going to live my life in whatever way I want to live my life. I'm going to deny myself nothing, I will spare no expense, and I'll just live the life that I want to live for me. And you go out and you live this life. And in the course of you living that life, you actually ruin your life. You waste everything. You lose all your money. You lose your status and reputation. You lose your friends. And when you hit rock bottom, you somewhat come to your senses and you think, well, what if I try to go back to God? And you start to kind of go that way. Now, what would you expect from him? You've insulted him, you've denied him, which means you treated him like he didn't exist or he didn't matter. You've turned away from him, you've hit rock bottom, and you've totally blown it. Now, what should you expect when you return? Well, that question is why Jesus came to planet Earth, so that we might understand what happens when we turn towards home under those circumstances. We're going to be in, in Psalm 51 today, but before you turn there, um, we're kind of going to take the long way around the barn. Uh, we're, we're going to look kind of behind the music. That is, we're going to see the story uh, that made Psalm 51. We're going to look at the life of a man named David. David wrote this psalm, this song. He wrote a majority of the psalms. Uh, and David was this singer, songwriter, shepherd, turned warrior king of Israel. Uh, and we're also going to look at a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15, a parable. Um, we're going to look at both these things and kind of see how they fit together in Psalm 51. At least that's what I hope will happen. Uh, if you do have a Bible, open to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And just to kind of give you a little bit of context on the story that we see here in, in 2 Samuel, it is, um, it's spring. And uh, in the spring, the weather is nice. And when the weather is nice, um, men go out and fight each other. And that's what's happening here. It's time to go to battle. Um, and so all the able-bodied men are out uh, at war with the exception of David. King David is actually at home on the couch. So verse 2 in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch he was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw the roof, and then that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, what we're going to see in this story in David's life is uh, this kind of trajectory or this path of sin. Uh, James, in his letter, he talks about this very same kind of trajectory and path, but you're going to see David actually illustrate it and live it out. So David supposed to be at war, but he's instead he's at home, and he looks across, he sees his neighbor, she's taking a bath on the roof, she's beautiful, and so David uh, has the beginning of this process, is there's this temptation, there's this whisper, there's this whisper of, you could have that, that could be, that could be yours, you could do, you could do this, you could, you could, you could do that, that's the beginning, this kind of whisper of temptation, verse, verse three, and David sent and inquired about the woman, 
And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So the next step, uh, and it's the next step with us as well too, there's the whisper of temptation, but then there's the kind of imagination that gets engaged. Especially when David finds out that she's off limits. She's somebody else's wife. But David, he listens to the whisper. He pursues the, the voice of the temptation. He engages his imagination and he starts to think, what would it be like to be with her? And then he takes it a step further. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. And then she returned to her house. He listened to the voice. He engaged his imagination. His desire took over. He took what wasn't his. Verse 5. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So again, what we do with sin, listen to the voice, engage our imagination, the desire takes over, we sin. And now, David is thinking, I have to cover up the sin. I have to conceal the sin. Nobody can find out what I've done. So he begins this kind of irrational and desperate plan to cover up his sin against Bathsheba. And so he sends for Uriah. He sends for Bathsheba's husband. Joab is his kind of commander-in-chief. Uriah comes. David says, welcome home from the fight. Thank you for everything you're doing. I know it's tough out there. To show my appreciation, let me help you get cleaned up. Why don't you go home to your wife? Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. So David's thinking, this is a perfect plan. I get this guy home from battle. I get him home from war. He's wore out. He's been sleeping in the dirt. I know his wife is beautiful. When a man comes home from a long journey, he wants to go be with his beautiful wife. Problem solved. But what David does not figure into the equation is that Uriah is a man of character. He's a man of integrity. Verse 9, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to the house. The next morning, David finds out. His servant said, you know, Uriah never went home last night. And David's like, what in the world? I can't, why? I cannot figure this out. And he says to him, why did you not go down to your house? Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah, they, they dwell in booths. They, they're out sleeping in tents, and, and, the, and they sleep in the, in the open field. My Lord, Joab and servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Uriah says, who am I? Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So David wasn't counting on that. But David knows that all men are simple creatures. So if you want to get a man to sleep with his wife, get him drunk. If you don't read the Bible, it's amazing. You should. That's, it's crazy what's in here. Um, so that's exactly what happens. David has Uriah over for dinner, gets him drunk. But instead of going home, Uriah decides to sleep it off with the servants. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So David now is getting more and more desperate, more and more irrational. So he writes this letter. He gives it to Uriah. Here's what the letter says. 
Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him and he may be struck down and die. So look at how far out of hand this has gotten for David. He writes a letter for prescription for Uriah's death and makes Uriah carry it to his commanding officer. And that's exactly what happens. They're in the fierce battle. Uriah is pushed to the forefront. Everybody else kind of retreats. Terrible losses. Uriah is killed. The messenger comes back and says, tells this to David. This is how David answers the messenger who brings this report of these casualties and of Uriah's death. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. David sends word back to Joab and just says, These kind of things happen. This is the way of war. People die. Verse 26, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And this last phrase in the end of verse 27 is the most tragic phrase in the whole chapter. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So we see David, he's really kind of gotten accustomed to the leanings of his sin until in chapter 12 when David's pastor comes to visit him. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich, had, the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. And now there came a traveler to the rich man, the man who had all the, the flocks, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to visit him. Verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You ever notice how righteous we can become when we're talking about someone else's sin? And then verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. With one line, Nathan shatters David. He says, you are that man. What David hears, though, are actually some of the most liberating words that David ever hears. It's so powerful in David's life because he's learning now that God loves him too much to allow him to continue to conceal things, the things that steal his joy, that steal his strength. God loves him too much to let him continue to live like that. This is the mercy of God that David is experiencing here. A God who loves his son too much to leave him in a place where he is more miserable than he could possibly understand. Turn over to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 in the New Testament. Just turn to the right. Luke, Luke chapter 15. These are stories that Jesus is teaching. Um, 
they're, they're parables of lost things. And as Jesus is teaching these stories, the Bible says that his audience is made up of uh, sinners and tax collectors. So think kind of society's worst of the worst over here. And then uh, Pharisees and other kind of religious leaders. So the supposed best of the best over here. And as Jesus begins to tell the story of a lost son or a prodigal son, he engages the sinners that are gathered around. And he begins to tell the story and he says, there's a man who has two sons. And the younger son goes to his father and he says, Dad, give me everything that is due me. I want my inheritance. I want my portion of the estate. Uh, what I'm supposed to get when you're gone, I want it now. He says, I'm, I'm going to trade what the ultimate is for the immediate. And the father gives his son his inheritance. And the boy goes out and he spends it on what the Bible calls wild living. And the party is on, and I'm sure it's a ton of fun. And he goes out, and he spends all his money. And the money is gone. And when the money is gone, the fun is usually out. And when the fun is out, the friends are out. And so then we find this young man, broke, friendless, rock bottom, uh, he, there's a famine in the land. He can't get work anywhere else. Uh, he works for a pig farmer feeding pigs. And the scripture says he has this moment where he's looking at the husks of corn. And he thinks to himself, he comes to his senses, uh, and, and he thinks, the servants, the servants at my father's house have it better than this. They've got bread to eat, and I'm thinking about eating this pig food. And he says, I'll go home, perhaps... Perhaps, maybe, I, I can get a job as a, as a servant. And so, he comes to himself, and uh, in, in the NIV, it says he comes to his senses. And in verse 17, um, he writes a little speech that he's going to deliver to his dad when he gets home. Verse 17, chapter 15. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Verse 18. I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Okay. Are, are, you, in the, are you in the story with these guys? Uh, have you ever been where they are? Like, what, what, what is David feeling right now? And I don't know if you've ever, you probably haven't arranged to have somebody murdered, but you've been somewhere you shouldn't have been with someone you shouldn't have been with doing something that you shouldn't have done. And the thing that you thought was concealed, the thing that you thought was covered up, the thing that you thought would never be brought to light has been discovered. How does that feel? What is David feeling in that encounter, in that interaction with Nathan? What's the prodigal look like? What's the son, what's he, what's he smell like? In that moment, is he embarrassed? Is he ashamed? Is he worried? Is he scared? Put yourself in the story with these guys. Bible says that even though he's a wreck, he still has opportunity to think straight. And you, too, by God's grace, have an opportunity to think straight this morning. If you're here and you're listening to these stories, and maybe they're familiar, maybe you're hearing them for the very first time, and they're starting to hit kind of close to home, just look at God's grace that's all around you right now. 
God is allowing you to be here today on the Sunday at 11.36 in the morning. God is allowing you to hear these stories, to hear his word, be reminded of the bigger story of his mercy and his grace and his love. There's grace for you today to start thinking clearly about where you are in life. And God is saying, no matter what kind of slop, what kind of filth you've been living in, Jesus is here, he's alive, you can head home today. Let's look at what this young man starts to rehearse. The first thing he says is, Father, I have sinned. And when you turn back towards God, you're not turning back to an idea. You're not turning back to a concept or some kind of energy. It's a personal creator who has invited us to know him as father. And that word father is so important because that's really what was lost. The, the money is not that big of a deal to him, but what was lost was a relationship. We always think about the consequences of our sin, but what matters most to God is the relationship. And in our lives, we will have to deal with the consequences of our sin. And that's not easy. It's very difficult. But when you are back in the arms of your father and you know that you are a son or a daughter, the security of that relationship lets you walk through the difficulty of the consequences of your sin. The security of your identity of knowing that you are a beloved son or daughter allows you to walk through the difficult consequences of your sin. The relationship was broken, so the first word back is father. He wasn't planning on getting back a father. He was planning on returning to an employer, but he left his father. The next words he says is, I have sinned. Let's all say that together. I have sinned. Why is that so difficult to say? I, I, we have three children um, Evie, Vera, and Silas. Vera is the five-year-old in the middle, and uh, she's, um, she's amazing. Uh, she's, she's beautiful. She's really funny. We call her a little walking sunshine. Uh, I, I love her to death. She also has the funkiest smelling feet of anybody I've ever met. <laughs> and for whatever reason, whenever we get all in the minivan together, she decides that's the perfect time to kick her shoes off. And it's 115 degrees outside, so I can't roll the windows down. And, and everybody knows immediately when Vera's taking her shoes off. And I'm like, we're like, Vera. And I'll say to her, why'd you take your shoes off? Put your shoes back on. We've talked about this a bunch of times. And she'll launch into, she's like, well, you know, Evie doesn't have her shoes on. Or she's like, one time she said to me, well, remember when I was young? And I was like, you're five. You're still young. What are you talking about? But she just kind of comes up with all these excuses on why she had to do what I asked her not to do. We are the same way. We are the same way. We blame our bosses. We blame our teachers. We blame our environment. We blame our friends. We blame our parents. We blame our spouses. But this young man here, he takes responsibility in three words. It usually takes us about 3,000 words to try to explain ourselves. But he says in, in three words, he got to the point where he was completely aware that it was his actions that landed him in the mess that he was in. I have sinned. Next, he says, against heaven and against you. He's revealing something very important to us. We don't ever just sin against someone. There aren't any victimless sins. All sin is against God and against all of heaven. Repentance is full repentance when we realize that we've offended a holy God. He, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your, your son. So, so track with what he's saying here because he has the right thoughts. He says, Father, he recognizes that there's a, a relationship that's been interrupted. He, he says, I've sinned. He's taking responsibility. He says, I'm, I'm no longer worthy. And, and he's right. Sin makes us unworthy. And his speech basically was, I'm in trouble. You're my only hope. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Here's where he gets a little sideways. Verse 19. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He does what we so often do. He starts to tell the father how to respond to him when he comes home. He, he was right about being unworthy, but he says, I, I, I just want to be a hired servant. So he just assumes I'm just going to be a hired servant. But the father has a different plan. Okay, turn to Psalm 51. Finally made it there. Psalm 51, now this is a, a song, a prayer that David writes. The Bible says he writes it to choir master, so this was a song to be sung in a corporate gathering. And he writes this um, after his encounter with Nathan. And I, this is one of my favorite psalms. I love this because I think it gives us such a clear picture of what it looks like to have a heart that is arrested by God. He says in verse 1 of Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now David gets right to the point. He appeals to the mercy of God without reminding God about all the great things that David has done. He doesn't start off by saying, God, remember that thing with me and Goliath. Remember the anointing. Remember like all these things that I've done. He goes right at, he gets right to the point, appealing to the mercy of God. Verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Again, repentance is coming to realize who you've sinned against. That your sin is ultimately against God. It's a huge moment when we say to God ourselves that we've sinned against him. That, that statement is... is uh, David's greatest hope and freedom. I have sinned against a merciful God. There, there's freedom for David in that statement. And this time, in this culture, other gods were set apart by their perceived power or ability to destroy. But David's God, the one true God, Yahweh, is set apart by his great mercy. And David, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time trying to conjure up the Lord's interest in his sin. You know why? Because your sin isn't that interesting. We think it is. We act like it is. We wear our scars around like badges. We flock together with people who have kind of similar pet sins. But the scripture says there's really nothing new under the sun. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the most interesting thing about you is not what you have done in the past, but what God has done on your behalf through his son, Christ Jesus. It's nothing, uh, it, it's not a, a marvel or unique thing to be broken. The miracle is the repair or the restoration. We've been watching a lot of this like fix up house show. Someone told my wife she looks like the woman that's on the show and so it's been playing on our, in our house, which makes me really nervous because every episode this woman's like can't wait to knock a wall over and so now my wife's like walking around wants to know what wall we can push over in our house. But every time, they, every time they, they have the show, and these shows have been around forever, right? But they always show you the kind of the rundown, the dilapidated, the broken down house. But that's not really like the, the thing that everybody's waiting to see. The part you want to see is how are they going to fix it up? How are they going to repair it? How are they going to restore it, right? If the show was just like, hey, we just showed you four houses that are all broken down. We'll see you next week for the next episode. No one's watching that show. In your life, too, the most interesting thing about you is what God has done and is doing to repair and to restore what was broken. 
That's what the world is waiting to watch. That's what they're wanting to hear. That's the story of your life that they need to hear. Verse 5 David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David not only knows a lot about God, David knows God well. And what he knows is that God is able to create something out of nothing. And so he's asking him to create something beautiful when he feels like he has nothing left. Verse 11, it says, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Even at your lowest, God is still present there. He doesn't say bring back your presence because God is still there. Verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He says in verse 16, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Verse 17, because the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God is not pleased in elaborate gestures or trying to make a deal with him to prove how sorry you are. In this culture, at this time, um, when you had sinned, the law says that you'd have to bring just the right sacrifice, just the right animal, prepare just the right way. But David knew there's no way an animal's going to cover this. And he seems to know that that is pointing towards something greater that God has. But that is our instinct, isn't it? When we sin, we try to make a bargain with God. We say, God, if you just forgive me, I'll, I'll never do that again. I'll never say that again. I'll never look at that again. I'll never watch that again. I'll never take that again. I'll never use that again. And we know almost as soon as we say it, we're not going to hold up our end of the bargain. God knows it too. But we're, when we sin, we're inclined to bargain with God. We give him this long list of things that he's not interested in. But God doesn't want your speech. He doesn't want your bargain. The point is that God's not really interested in your words because he wants your heart. We have these speeches like we're going to convince him, like we're some kind of lawyer with God. Do you really think that if God didn't want to forgive you that you'd be able to talk him into it? But David knows the heart of his father well enough to know that he isn't looking for a sacrifice. He says, if you wanted it, I'd give it to you. But I know you well enough. That's not what you're looking for. He's like, if I, if I thought there was a sacrifice that you'd want, I'd, I'd offer it. But all I can offer is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. But when he does that, David actually offers up the sacrifice that God wants the most, which is the sacrifice of David himself, a broken heart, a broken spirit. And what he offers God is broken and, 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 and fractured, and he's in pieces, but he gives God all those pieces. He doesn't hold anything back. It says it's broken, it's blemished, but it's everything. It's everything, and it's all, it's all yours. We see the same thing with the father and the prodigal son. 
Jesus as he's telling that story. He says, when the son was a long way off, the father ran to him. And that's because the father was looking for him. I love this picture. I, I see the, the father kind of on the front porch, leaning forward, hands up, blocking out the sun, peering over the horizon, just waiting to see the silhouette of his son coming towards him, that same silhouette that he saw walking away from him. And every day, day in and day out, he's staring, watching, waiting for his son to come home. And then one day, he sees a silhouette break the horizon. Now, in that moment, the father has all kinds of power. You have to understand, he could have he done anything there. He could have said to his servants, there comes my son. He better not get within a thousand yards of this house. And if he does, one of you are paying for it. He, he, if he would have said, my son is dead to me, he would have been, been dead to the family, dead to the people in the town. The father has all kinds of moments. But the scripture says what he does, he pulls up his tunic and he starts tearing down the driveway. And he runs and he embraces his son and starts kissing him. And, 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 he, and he throws his arms around him. And the, the, the father never once asks for the speech. He never once says, do you have something to say to me? He's too busy. He's too busy yelling at the servants to start the party. Go get all of our best stuff. Go get, go get the best of what we have. Put it on my son. Throw a party. I, I think so many of us, especially if you've grown up in church, we've kind of made a whole religion around the speech. The, the magic prayer, right? The saying just the right words. Paul in the book of Romans tells us that if we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. How's that for an elaborate prayer? Jesus is Lord. And then the posture of a Jesus follower is that you maintain for the rest of your life is repentance and faith towards that. This, this son here, his highest hope was to come home as a servant. And now the servants are taking care of the son. The speech never gets any airtime because the father loves the son, embraces the son. All the emphasis that's in Psalm 51 and Luke 15 is on the mercy of God. And I love this. What I love about the father is that he just wants to see his son or daughter coming up over the hill. He just wants him back. He's not listening for the magic words. He's looking to embrace you. And I love this. And I love this because I have spent sleepless nights rehearsing the speech that God never needed. I love this because the sin that I replay in my head over and over and over and over again. He has separated as far as the east is from the west. He's thrown it into the deepest chasm and the deepest sea and he put up a no fishing sign. I love this because he welcomed me home, embraced me, and threw a party. I love this because I can freely and truly worship and love and live for him. And I love this most of all because of how he loves me. I try to, I try to end messages with giving you something to do, but it's kind of a challenge with this topic because so, we put so much work into what we do in, in, this, in this area, but, but this message does lead to a response. There's, there's two things, I think, that we do here. Um, the, the first is if God, by his spirit and, and by his kindness, is leading you to confess sin and to repent, now is the time to do that. 
1 John 1, 5 through 9 says, This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, the Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, church, what happens? He is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, sin finds its power by hiding in the darkness. Confession robs sin of the power to keep us in that darkness. You see that with David there, we see it in his story. That the more he hid, the more he concealed. Sin's power was growing. That confession robs sin of the power to keep us in the darkness. That word confess, it means that we say the same thing as. When we confess, we say the same things about our sin that, that God does. We agree with God that our sin violates his law, that it is an offense against him, that it interrupts our fellowship with him, that it is a lie, that it's meant to steal and kill and destroy. And finally, when we confess, we agree and we declare that the penalty, the payment for our sin was totally and completely satisfied and paid for in full by the death of his son, Jesus. This same Jesus who today is at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for his children whose life, whose death, whose resurrection is our promise and our security that we can never be separated from the love of the Father. And so if anybody is here today and you just want to say, I, I, I just have to confess that I'm in a ton of trouble and I want to go home. That I ended up so far from home. That I ended up so far for, from freedom. I just, I just want to be with my heavenly Father. And the only thing that I can bring home is, is a broken heart, a broken spirit over my sin. And the only thing I'm counting on is his mercy. Then don't wait for the conditions to be any better. Do it now, today. What do you need to confess? The second response is we see it in Psalm 51, verses 14 and 15. Deliver me from my guilt, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. David writes the song of a son or a daughter that's been welcomed home. He says, here I am. Here's everything. Here's every broken, shattered piece of me. Here are all the best parts. Here are all the worst parts. Here's everything in between. That's the song we sing as those who have been forgiven and free because of what Jesus has done. And I think really the only thing that God wants to hear from us, from his kids, is thank you. And we love you. And we have a time, a chance to do that now at communion like we do every week. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for that. Father God, we love you this morning. God, we thank you for... Um, we thank you for the scriptures. God, I thank you for um, this account of David. God, I thank you for the parable that Jesus shares. God, I thank you for um, the honesty, uh, 
that's in them. God, I thank you for the vulnerability that's in them. God, I think of what David writes in Psalm 51, and we just see this heart that is broken before you. And God, I pray for me for those things. God, I pray for us for those things. God, I pray that even now, by your kindness, God, we would be moved to confess our sin, God, to turn from it and to turn to you, God, knowing that you are a father who welcomes the, the prodigal home. God, I just pray that, um, God, now as we go to this time of communion, God, we would remember, we would celebrate Jesus, what he has done to make all of this possible. It's in his name we pray. Amen.